This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What I wanted to talk about was uh, some of the enabling technologies and how they've uh, been used in, in advancing humans in space, but also how they've uh, had some major impact on, uh, on uh, terrestrial applications here on Earth. So... Um, in, in light of the fact that this was a uh, uh, um, Women's History Month, I also wanted to include a really neat story that many p- people probably don't uh, know about. So I entitled this, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon and Technology Issues in Human Spaceflight. I love uh, history and I also love uh, aviation. And like uh, Steve, I started out young. Uh, my initial flight uh, uh, was flights were in gliders. So I, I was taking off without an engine and landing without an engine. And it really actually made a huge difference in my uh, aviation career. I was fortunate to spend uh, 26 years in the Navy, uh, most of which was in flying billets. And I love this quote, the machine, which at first blush seems a means of isolating man from the great problems of nature actually plunges him more deeply into them. As with the peasant, so for the pilot, dawn and twilight become events of consequence. Anton de Saint-Exupéry was a, uh, uh, a pilot in the uh, post-World War I era who flew mail uh, routes in Europe, uh, Africa, and South America. And he, he wrote several books. That probably the most famous one was The Little Prince. Uh, but he also wrote two books on flying wind, sand, and stars, and night flight. And this is a quote from him. Now, I'm sorry about the gender uh, bias, uh, but obviously women do as much as men do in in aviation. So what I wanted to kind of just initially uh, uh, talk about, what is it that gets us in trouble in space? Basically, it comes from uh, within and from without. Those uh, things that come from within are the medical and uh, uh, surgical events that can result from things that just occur either uh, uh, from disease states or sometimes uh, from hereditary states or, or, or just bad luck. Um, but the real threats that we face are the extrinsic threats, which I like to break down into three broad categories. The uh, environment of space, which includes the vacuum of space and microgravity and radiation, the vehicle environment. Um, because we cannot survive for more than several seconds in the absence of uh, pressure, uh, we have to. Uh, we are totally dependent on uh, life support systems to provide pressure, oxygen, um, thermal control, uh, and all those things that we take for granted living here on Earth. And then the things that we impose on the crew, such as uh, shift schedule changes, workload, etc. Um, I wanted to add this chart, even though it seems somewhat of an eye chart, um, because this is a great reference if you truly are interested in things that happen in space. Uh, This was compiled after the Columbia uh, mishap, which I was a part of the uh, investigation, the uh, spacecraft survival investigation part. And what we did was we cataloged all of the events that have happened in space or analog environments that we could learn from in space. Uh, The red dots, uh, the red boxes are uh, loss of crew, the orange ones are injuries, uh, significant injuries, the yellow ones are mission uh, uh, events that affect the mission, uh, and then the white ones are just other uh, things that happen. Um, The point about this chart 
uh, is that virtually every phase of spaceflight has associated uh, risk and, and has had events. And many people, even at NASA, don't realize how many close calls we've had. Uh, this link at the bottom here, when you get the handout, you can actually click on that. And the new version of this at NASA is if you click on each of these boxes, uh, it, it uh, pops up other uh, documents and, and more useful information. And if you're interested in, in, in more detail, uh, this is something I spent uh, pretty much my latter part of my career on is crew survival and escape systems. So these are the, this is just an overview of all the bad things that have happened. Um, the high energy transition of launch and ascent and the thermal energy transition of reentry and landing uh, are in large part why all the fatalities to date have occurred either on uh, launch and ascent or reentry and landing. But the real risk, as we'll get into shortly, is the on-orbit phase, because that's where uh, we will spend longer and longer times, uh, particularly as we go into uh, space activities in, in the deep space region, which we'll talk about. I, uh, I wanted to also just give a perspective of how much time humans have spent in space since 1961. Uh, so this is uh, our... Uh, uh, 60, 60 year anniversary of the first human in space, Yuri Gagarin, and uh, just shy just next month in April, uh, mid-April uh, of 1961 was when he flew. Um, to date, we have 156 crew years, which is something on the order of uh, 56,000 uh, crew days. And a, a majority, or at least half that uh, uh, group is made up of Russians because they started flying longer uh, space station missions while we were doing planetary uh, lunar exploration. Uh, by comparison, the uh, Apollo program, which sent people to uh, uh, the moon and also uh, for several of those that got to actually go on the moon uh, and, and, and do things, you can see the appalling less number. So if you think 56,000 days we've spent in orbit, uh, the 27 people that went to deep space spent 250 days. So that's about a, you know less than uh, half a percent of the total number. And an even smaller amount has spent time on the moon, the lunar surface itself. Uh, just to give us perspective as we start talking about longer space flights, we've actually had people who have spent time in space, predominantly low Earth orbit and microgravity, uh, for periods of time that would amount to the, the time it would take to go to Mars and do a short stay mission and come back. Um, many of the longer missions uh, are actually on the order of uh, two and a half or three years. But we have accumulated a fair number of folks who've had mission days in excess of 500 days. So let's talk a little bit about this, a funny thing happened on the way to the moon. This is a, this is a story that uh, uh, came out just a few years ago. Um, and when you realize the um, challenges that this woman overcame, it's really quite amazing. Her name was Margaret Hamilton. And uh, she was a, a programmer, uh, self-taught, uh, working at the MIT Instrument Lab, which uh, 
ha has become the uh, Draper uh, Lab uh, for its uh, original director, Charles Stark Draper. And uh, to get to the moon, we took it took three different entities. It took government in the form of NASA. It took industry like ILC Dover, who built the, spa the spacesuits, who were originally bra manufacturers. And it took academia. Uh, and the role academia played was immense in that they were assigned the mission to build the uh, Apollo guidance computers. Now, guidance computers uh, were extremely limited back then. They were uh, uh, made of uh, wire that we would either go through a, a magnet or not, and that would be the, the, the uh, definition of a bit of a, a one or a zero. Uh, but it really took a lot of folks who could actually learn how to write code for the computer to act on. And if you think about the challenges of going to the moon, uh, where you had uh, rocket burns, you had uh, rendezvous and docking, you had uh, descent and landing on a on a on a surface and then return. Um, the software uh, was a major part of it. And here's a um, Margaret. If you look at that bottom uh, picture, that's her standing with all the Apollo codes, which is actually taller than she was. So a funny story uh, came out um, several years ago where she, as a working mom, would take her young daughter, uh, Lauren, to the lab on weekends and at nights uh, while she was working on uh, various tests and writing code. And uh, during one of the tests, they were running a... a a code, a, a software a load uh, of, of the lunar uh, module going to the moon. And uh, Lauren was started to push buttons and cause the whole uh, guidance computer to crash. Margaret recognized that that was a, a very serious concern. And rather than chastise her, she actually uh, uh, dug it out what was exactly going on and, and uh, uh, asked to have a software fix uh, made um, but the uh, NASA administration was very worried about a uh, software fix that would override the crew. And she said, well, you know, this could happen on a mission. And she was told, well, astronauts never make mistakes. Um, well, guess what? Uh, the first uh, lunar mission um, was Apollo 8, which was going to do a, a flyby of the moon, uh, which was in December of 1968. And during the uh, transit, uh, sure enough, uh, through no fault of his own, Jim Lovell made that uh, same uh, computer crash occur. What it did was it took the uh, computer's program from the uh, in-flight phase to the pre-launch phase. And that was the same thing that uh, Margaret's daughter created by uh, pushing some buttons inadvertently. Well, the bottom line is she ended up... Uh, uh, despite the fact that they didn't write a software fix to prevent it, um, they were able to override it. Um, on Apollo 11, um, during the, the descent phase, a alarm went off. Um, and later on, they found out that it was because the crew had uh, activated the rendezvous radar during descent when it was supposed to be only used for ascent. And it over, it's basically started jamming the computer. Were it not for Margaret's design of the uh, program logic to override um, errors and focus on priority tasks and dump loads that were not important, Apollo would never have happened. 
she actually coined the term software engineer, uh, engineering. Uh, and she's been finally recognized uh, in 2017 by uh, being awarded the Congressional Medal of Freedom. But this is a really cool story and it really highlights uh, Women's History Month. So astronauts never make mistakes. Any of you skiers put on a boot backwards? If you notice there, uh, the crew had serviced the, uh, um, the EVA spacesuit, the extravehicular mobility suit, and put the boots on backwards. This is just one of many uh, human factors, incidents, and errors that have happened. And uh, over the course of my uh, career, I've tried to track these just to, to show we have got to account for humans uh, in complex systems. Um, we know in aviation that 75% of the mishaps are human factors related. And sure enough, space is no different. Um, I, won't, I don't have time to go through all of the human factors incidents uh, that I've uh, uh, collected, but suffice it to say that we've had some significant issues in close calls. Um, these are just some of the events I have gleaned from that uh, overview slide of, of the serious events. We've had in the Russian program, um, three times that the mission was terminated and the crew was evacuated. Um, and you can see that here, a combustion event and headache, uh, a urinary tract infection and a cardiac uh, um, arrhythmia. And three other times when the crew was in the process of getting ready to evacuate, when the medical event uh, resolved and they ended up terminating it. And there's a whole story behind each of those. We've had uh, combustion events, which were a euphemism for a fire. A fire in a closed uh, space, um, like a space capsule, was a really serious event. And uh, interestingly enough, some of these were attributed to crew uh, switch errors. Um, Steve, you might remember uh, some of the uh, concern about spacewalks, uh, EVAs um, that were uh, had to be terminated for various things, uh, such as uh, torn gloves, uh, which has happened. Um, and during the Apollo mission, there was uh, uh, high workload and crew injuries. But the thing that's really uh, striking here is that, and uh, this is a tabulation to date, is that there have been 43 inadvertent releases of tools and cameras and other items. And uh, that uh, uh, special uh, uh, drill wrench that uh, Steve showed um, would probably costs a couple of million dollars. Besides the fact that now a foreign object in floating in pro close proximity to the space station. In addition to some of the medical events that have affected virtually every organ system, We've also seen issues with crew performance um, that could be attributed to a variety of microgravity and space events, uh, including some of the effects on the uh, vestibular system and sensory motor, sensory motor perceptual uh, illusions. Um, and they've involved any uh, various things such as uh, uh, rendezvous and docking, um, robotic arm operation, and even uh, uh, shuttle crew uh, uh, shuttle landing performance is not as good as it, 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 it perhaps uh, would be considering pilots are highly trained um, to uh, perform that maneuver. 
This is the Mir space station, uh, which had uh, some obvious uh, issues uh, that were crew uh, related. Uh, the uh, progress collision uh, uh, in 96 caused uh, the vehicle to depressurize and tumble. Um, just a brief overview of what we do in space medicine, um, which is actually a term that was coined in 1948, several decades before we actually flew in space. Um, we, uh, and, and this is a pretty uh, standard approach uh, for uh, um, commercial air crew and military air crew is you always want to start with the crew in the best condition. So pre-mission optimization, including exercise and uh, um, various uh, health um, um, enhancing measures are, are, are really important. Once you're in space, the goal is to uh, uh, counter the effects of the various disturbing effects of microgravity by various devices such as exercise, uh, et cetera. And then finally, if the worst case scenario happens and they develop a medical condition, uh, then you would use your uh, medical uh, 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 system to uh, um, stabilize them. Um, but the reality is that we know that we've had some very close calls. Uh, we've never evacuated a U.S. crew member back to Earth, but we've had crew come back that were in a fairly significantly degraded shape. Where this is going to go and when we start flying really long missions is that there's a whole new change of how we're going to have to approach this. Um, this is a great view of the space station, uh, not quite assembly complete um, with the solar arrays. There would be uh, four more solar arrays and uh, several more radiators added. Um, for any healthcare support system, whether it be on Earth or um, in space, um, there are four main components to it. People, equipment, procedures, and training. And uh, these uh, systems over the uh, um early phase of uh, NASA and uh, uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, and, and throughout the 30 years of uh, the space shuttle have been refined uh, ever so much so that now on space station, uh, they have uh, a very, very robust capability, but um, it is very limited in the sense that it can take care of a very sick uh, crew member for maybe a couple of days um, so it's basically like an advanced ambulance capability. So what people think of in, in traditional healthcare settings of what we might have in space is, is actually not really as, as uh, robust as, as, it, as we'd like. Where this is gonna go when we go to uh, deep space is, uh, as we'll get into is gonna be a serious challenge. Um, one of the things that we had in addition to the um, uh, various crew uh, coordination and uh, um, human factors uh, issues is, is a phenomenon that some crew members describe. Uh, and these are all terms that I've been uh, actually uh, told by crew members uh, right after landing that they felt like their brain was in oatmeal, that they, things were no longer intuitive um, it's been well recognized in the uh, Russian program. Uh, they, they, they call it neurasthenia um, or space fog. And uh, uh, it's had effects on crew. Some of it may be due to a residual of medications used for motion sickness. 
but I've had long duration crew members describe it as well. We now know that there are significant effects on the nervous system uh, in long duration spaceflight. Um, they can include fluid shifts uh, and also radiation, as we'll get into. Here's another shot of Mir. Um, all expeditions in austere and extreme environments uh, suffer the same concern. And Ral Almondson, who was one of the polar explorers, uh, said the human factor is three quarters of any expedition. And uh, that means that if you could have the best equipment and the best support and logistics, uh, but if, if you don't have crew that are resilient and uh, can handle uh, and adapt, uh, it will fail. Um, these are some, uh, just a, another uh, list of the performance concerns. Much of it has to do with the uh, interaction of the vehicle environment and the mission architecture and the human systems integration. We are going more and more with automated systems. Of course, automated systems were used extensively in the Russian program. Uh, Yuri Gagarin had virtually no crew duties whatsoever. He was only 26 years old when he flew. Uh, it was not what we would consider a, an experienced test pilot like uh, our um, original astronauts were. Um, as we've had advanced systems, we now have advanced complexity. And uh, because of this space uh, fog, uh, crew will lose intuitiveness and they have to follow their checklist much more closely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the future. Um, we have spent 156 years, uh, person years in low Earth orbit and have a lot of experience there. Uh, but we are destined to go further. And uh, for those missions that went to the moon uh, and some that landed on the moon and did uh, terrestrial EVAs, um, they were in deep space and they had a much higher uh, radiation exposure. The Van Allen belts uh, pr provide an electromagnetic field around the Earth that is, uh, reduces our uh, radiation from uh, deep space by a factor of, uh, probably a factor of 100, maybe even more. Um, even in low Earth orbit, the crew gets dosage, doses of radiation that are about 10 times higher than they would be on the surface of the, uh, of the Earth. One of the major challenges that we're going to face, uh, particularly going to um, a planet like Mars, being, say, th 33 million miles away, is uh, calm delays. The Earth and, the, and Mars can be uh, near each other, so the calm delay may be as short as, uh, you know, uh, eight to ten minutes. Uh, but if it's on the opposite side of the sun from each other, the sun can actually block out communications completely uh, or extend it up to, say, 22 minutes of, of delay because, uh, because, because electromagnetic uh, communications travels at the speed of light. Um, you can imagine a mission that instead of months long or even years long is several years long and how that is going to affect your uh, proficiency at tasks and training. Um, we're certainly going to have issues with resupply, even if we preposition stuff, because, for example, medication has a shelf life. Uh, and uh, if you look at the label, even and food has a shelf life. And so if even if you preposition something uh, ahead of time, 
uh, it may not uh, mean that the shelf life uh, allows the uh, whatever it is, the food to be nutritious or the medication to be effective. And because uh, just like with the Apollo 13 mission, uh, they could not immediately turn back around and come home. They had to abort to lunar orbit and come back around. Um, that also is a factor in uh, deep space. And this is an actual picture from one of the uh, 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 rovers um, and that little dot there is the Earth. Now, when you're on the moon and you're looking back at the Earth, the Earth is about the size of your thumb at uh, arm's length, which is a, uh, a degree or so. Uh, but when you're on Mars, 33 million miles away, it's not even a pencil dot. You might be able to enhance it with a, a optical magnification and see that it's blue, but it's a pale blue teeny dot. We talk about the crew threats, uh, hazards, um, just like what I mentioned earlier, and the, the NASA likes to divide these into what they call ridge, ra uh, radiation, isolation, distance, gravity, and environments. And each of those has those uh, factors that uh, degrades uh, our um, traditional uh, posture of how we approach uh, 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 not just uh, space healthcare delivery, but also uh, how it, we approach uh, just lo the logistics support. Um, this is an interesting chart here. This was during one of the Skylab missions, uh, but it's also been replicated in uh, uh, space shuttle and space station. And this was the Skylab retinal uh, flash study and all those little X's there are when the retinal flashes occur. And they're usually at the extreme latitudes uh, because the magnetic poles uh, that protect the Earth uh, bend down and come in at the poles. And so they're very uh, much closer to the surface. And so we see retinal flashes at high latitudes. And another uh, area we see them in is a, a disruption in the magnetic uh, field called the South Atlantic Anomaly. And uh, that's another area we actually try to avoid doing spacewalks in that region because that's where uh, uh, high energy particles from the galactic cosmic radiation can penetrate. And crew will describe light flashes in their eyes. And the uh, South Atlantic Anomaly for some reason is actually enlarging and uh, they think that there might be some perturbation in the Earth's a magnetic pole, which is uh, uh, actually uh, not the same as the uh, Earth's ge geographic pole. Um, well, what does this correlate with? Retinal flashes are high energy particles that are hitting the brain and causing, uh, and actually in animals and, and whatnot can show, show damage. Well, what other, what other thing can also be seriously affected by these high energy particles? high-density computers uh, circuits. Um, this is a map of uh, a bit flip in computer circuits, particularly high-density integrated circuits, even radiation-hardened ones. And sure enough, you see a huge hole, a huge area where those bit flips occur around the South Atlantic anomaly and also in the upper uh, higher latitudes on the North and South Pole. So what this tells you is radiation 
high energy particles are bad for the brain and also bad for computer electronics. So some of the missions that NASA has planned are, um, obviously we've spent a lot of time in low Earth orbit, but these are some of the missions that are envisioned and the durations of time uh, that they would, would take and also how, how um, challenging it would be to return. Uh, and this is just available for your reference. Um, like we talked about earlier, the majority of risk in spaceflight uh, for the shuttle program was in, in the blue area here. This is launch, like in the Challenger mishap, and the uh, yellow area, which is the uh, reentry and, uh, and landing. As we start going to longer and longer missions, these are missions in the order of uh, two years or one year, you can see that medical events, which made a small part of the risk of loss of crew in short missions, now that area of red, which is the medical issue, the medical risk of loss of crew expands. And that's primarily because the duration of the mission is longer. Um, the other problem that you also see in, in this gray area is hardware failures. And you can imagine a hardware failure that affected a life support system could certainly be a, a very serious issue. So we are going to have to switch from what we are used to since 1961 uh, to a whole different process for these long deep space exploration class missions. For example, going to Mars, we can't use the current approach that we use to support medical, which is real time uh, communications and continuous mission control access for uh, troubleshooting and real-time remote guidance and consultation. Uh, if you think about how many vessels go up and resupply the space station uh, uh, with, uh, you know, now we have access to both the, the progress, this, the uh, uh, Cygnus uh, system, uh, uh, and also the SpaceX Dragon, and soon hopefully uh, the uh, um, Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser, we will, we will not have that immediate or near immediate re, uh, resupply capability, nor will we have an ability to bring somebody home. Right now in an emergency, if we had lost uh, pressure, we could bring crew home in several hours. Uh, for a medical issue, the uh, plan is to treat them for several days and see if they resolve. Uh, the so-called stand and fight mode, and then uh, uh, return to uh, Earth for definitive care. None of these are going to be available for exploration class. So some of the drivers for medical systems, uh, this is a list I've compiled over the years. Many of these are well known, mass power volume, uh, and I don't even have cost and schedule in here. Those are more uh, to deal with the uh, acquisition and sustainability but these are all things that are extremely desirable for a human, uh, any human uh, support system, but certainly for medical systems. So technology development, I'll go through a, a little story here. This is a story that uh, uh, developed after the Columbia mishap in 2003. Uh, the shuttle was grounded for two years, and actually Steve was on the first return to flight mission, which was several years later. And um, during that hiatus of no shuttle 
there was no crew exchange that could be done except for the Soyuz, and there was a fairly significant uh, up mass and a very significant down mass limitation. So we couldn't get things up, we couldn't get things down, and we couldn't get crew up and down. As a result of that, the uh, uh, astronaut office went from, a, uh, and in conjunction with the Russians, went from a three-person crew, which is the early space station era, to a two-person crew. And one of the things that was asked was, well, is there anything we can do um, with what we have? What came to pass was this uh, very rapid turnaround program that said, hey, we have an ultrasound machine on the space station and uh, we can train the crew to do diagnostic quality ultrasounds. If you've ever gone to a hospital and had an ultrasound, um, the, they're usually done by a trained uh, ultrasonographer and usually they're organ specific uh, trainers. So they, have, they do cardiac echoes or they do uh, abdominal echoes or they do musculoskeletal exams. NASA um, took a huge gamble and said, let's try a program where we can train the crew how to uh, perform an ultrasound, but with real-time guidance. So somebody on the ground is looking at the image. The crew acts as the hands and the eyes and the ears and with four hours of training, four to five hours of training, a crew could go up there and do a diagnostic quality ultrasound. And this became the ATOM program, the Advanced Diagnostic Ultrasound for Microgravity. And it was a total game changer. Um, they came up with um, a program uh, on, for every organ system. Uh, that, and this was available because the ultrasound, uh, the Human Research Facility ultrasound, which was a huge ultrasound, uh, was actually quite capable, except it was just extremely big. And so this was one of the orig original articles that came out of that uh, just uh, two years after the program was started. The idea was that you could uh, put this overlay down and the crew were trained in uh, all the different, uh, how to do all the switch positions for different anatomical uh, studies. Um, and again, this was four hours of training to, to do the quality ultrasound that a ultra, an ultrasonographer might be trained on uh, for several years. The difference is they had real-time support. Um, um, the uh, team on the ground in mission control could look at the image in near real time and say, do this, do that. Uh, all of this scripted out ahead of time. Um, and it was an amazing program that shed incredible um, uh, uh, fruit, as I'll get into. Here's Peggy Whitson, who was a renal physiologist looking at her uh, kidneys, uh, and she could actually see the little squirt of the uh, ureter into her bladder uh, with this. And so you have scientists that uh, uh, know a lot about the physiology uh, up there doing science um, in an incredibly ro robust way. Um, this was the Expedition 10 crew, Leroy Chow and Salazan Cherepov. Um, who at the time, this was right around when they first started uh, wanting to look at the, um, uh, the eye because there was concerns about fluid shift and uh, swelling in the brain. And so uh, the crew was trained on the ground on how to do this. And here you can see an image. Uh, that's the actual pupil moving uh, and constricting uh, 
uh, which is a, a, an assessment tool that we do in neurology. Um, now, this is a really cool slide. This was the HRF, the Human Research Facility Ultrasound. It was a ATL 1000, and that was the kind of ultrasound that we would have available in the 90s. If you went to a hospital and they needed to do an ultrasound on you, they'd have this big, huge cart um, like this rack panel here and move around and the ultrasonographer would hook all these wires up. Well, obviously, um, technology is evolving. And in 2011, GE came up with a laptop-based system shown here in this slide, uh, the GE VividQ. And that came up, I think, on the last shuttle flight. Um, and now the crew could use a much smaller system and much easier to, to do. And obviously, uh, um, it gave as good or better quality images as they could get with this older system. Well, fast forward a couple years now, um, GE has the V-Scan, a handheld uh, ultrasound, and there's another one called Butter, the Butterfly System that can plug into a, a laptop or a phone and give you this, uh, as, as almost as good a quality as, as you could get with uh, this uh, laptop-based system. Ultrasound has also been uh, now uh, used to do directed energy uh, for uh, coagulation of uh, uh, bleeding vessels. Uh, it's called high-frequency high, high focused ultrasound. Now, the developer of the ATOM program, who was a, a, a head of uh, trauma surgery at uh, Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, thought, gosh, you know, we can train somebody who's not a, uh, you know, a, a technical person to do diagnostic quality ultrasounds. Maybe we could use this in other applications. And so he was from Detroit and he, he was already working with the uh, various uh, uh, teams there like the, the Detroit Red Wings um, hockey team and the Detroit, Detroit Lions and, and some of the Olympic teams. And what they would do is they would do the same tr training protocol that was developed at NASA, and they would train the athletic trainers or the strength and conditioning folks to do diagnostic quality ultrasounds. Obviously, their focus there would be more on musculoskeletal exams. But it turns out it was a huge success, and uh, Scott and his team ended up going uh, both at the Olympic Training Center and to, to several Olympics where they could do real-time ultrasonography assessments on uh, athletes, high-performance athletes. And the story goes that uh, Scott was able to uh, evaluate, or Scott's team was able to use this technology uh, with the trainers, and they were able to get Lindsey Vaughn back up after she'd taken a fall. And the, the ultrasound showed that it was not a serious injury and that they all they needed to do was ice it and put her back in the game. So this is now one of the major spinoffs of uh, a, a technology uh, and, and procedure that was developed for space. And it's also now been expanded to uh, 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 remote and austere healthcare in uh, underserved uh, arenas, uh, such as uh, um, you know, Africa and uh, uh, Asia, uh, using the same techniques, they can uh, have a nurse midwife do a diagnostic quality ultrasounds to determine if the, uh, you know, maternal health um, of the mother is at risk and she needs to be uh, transferred to a hospital or that whether they can manage it there. 
Um, and uh, the, the story goes on and on about uh, the enhancements of ultrasound, which now, because of its portability, uh, has significantly improved healthcare uh, throughout the world. And then I like to tell another story that is, um, this is kind of a cool story. Uh, this was a NASA uh, uh, propul uh, uh, propulsion engineer, uh, Dave Saucier, who, who had a heart transplant by Michael DeBakey. And at the same time, Michael DeBakey was trying to do, develop a, uh, a pump that could help uh, heart patients while they were waiting for a transplant. It was called a uh, left ventricular assist device. And he was talking to his patient. Um, uh, this is Michael DeBakey here on the far uh, right and uh, David Saucier. And, and he, David Saucier had developed the high-speed turbine or had worked on with the high-speed uh, space shuttle propulsion uh, main engines uh, using these super high-speed uh, fans. And so, and so instead of a traditional type, type pump, they used an impeller system. And uh, they, uh, this is the complex uh, 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 computational fluid dynamics modeling that they came up with the right rotation speed not to shear the blood, uh, red blood cells. So here's another example of something uh, from space coming back and helping us on Earth. Well, future healthcare systems are going to continue to advance. Um, because of the long distance and the ability that uh, we, we don't have to immediately uh, return somebody back to Earth, we're going to have to come up with um, a mission control. In fact, um, we've often discussed that mission control, the, the concept of mission control center needs to be switched to mission support center in that they will no longer have the ability to do real-time uh, uh, um, uh, consultation and control of systems, they're going to have to push forward the um, capabilities. And that requires using uh, decision support tools, uh, using um, various machine learning and artificial intelligence, something that you take the ultrasound machine and you put it on an object and the, it has a, a repository or library of images and it says this is what it is or this is what you need to do to get a better image. Um, we also need to have uh, enhanced uh, diagnostic and therapeutic capabilities such as using the ultrasound that can both image and also coagulate blood vessels. And then another big thing is um, using uh, an analysis of the human's uh, omic system which includes the uh, the uh, uh, genetic and uh, protein uh, and also the microbiome, which is in our intestines, all of those things to in individualize healthcare. This right now is the hot topic in medicine. Uh, cancer patients now get chemotherapy that is uh, much less likely to cause adverse side effects and much more likely to be effective because of analysis of these omic parameters. And then finally, the capabilities of 3D printing, which can also print metals and other things. Uh, you can even print uh, medications. So this might be a way of uh, getting over around the, uh, life's, uh, the shelf life of medications. So technology development is great until it isn't. And so one thing that we always have to remember is how do you anticipate the failures like you see here in the uh, you know, this little cartoon of the, the shuttle toilet or the, the, the 
Apollo toilet not working. Um, and then I always, you know, for those of us that are old enough to remember the uh, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, A Space Odyssey, this, uh, this will always uh, get to the heart of uh, why people are worried about computers. Um, my closing thoughts are from a, 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 my uh, mentor and colleague, uh, Craig Fisher, uh, who was around, for, he was a Gemini uh, uh, an Apollo and shuttle t uh, flight surgeon, but he also did the 14-day uh, uh, Gemini uh, test in the spacesuit on the ground. So he's quite a, quite a hero of mine. But he said, the design and content of any space healthcare system is always an unfinished work in progress. Continuously updating based on the science research objectives of the mission, the vehicle constraints, uh, crew training and levels of desired care. And with that, I'll uh, end just my contact info. Um, I have a, a huge repository of uh, reference material, including many of the textbooks that cost a lot of money uh, that I make available for educational purposes and um, also a huge reference files. And uh, connect with me, please, if you have any further. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.